Xbox, you have your PlayStation, you have your Internet, you have your music videos. How can Civil War history compete for the attention of children today? We'll find out from Catherine Clinton when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My guest today is Catherine Clinton author of books for children and adults on the Civil War. And Catherine, we were talking about Harriet Tubman as someone who was featured in many children's books so that uh, every young person today at some point hears about her, but someone who has never uh, been featured in a serious adult biography until your uh, work. What, what about her, uh, the Underground Railroad sure. that she was involved in? Was that merely symbolic, or did that actually have a serious economic effect on uh, slavery? Well, I would argue that we're in the midst of a great revival. The Underground Railroad Freedom Center opened last year in Cincinnati, Ohio. I've seen four or five great books published on the Underground Railroad. Uh, Ken Griffin's book on on the Battle Lines of Freedom, um, Anne Hagedorn's Across the River. They are really looking at the, the war before the war is what I think it can be called. And maybe it's I'm affected by the fact that I just returned from the heartland, my hometown, Kansas City, and uh, I always feel that there was a lot of fighting going on, a lot of shooting, a lot of bloodshed before the actual Civil War broke out. And you had armed abolitionists and you had armed pro-slavery advocates. And this was something that went on very deeply, very strongly in American culture during the decade leading up to the war. I think that the Underground Railroad was an important part of robbing the slave power of not just its property, 
but its sense of entitlement that slaves liberating themselves, enslaved persons voting with their feet, leaving the the pro-slavery power behind was something I think important and something I think that did indeed increase and incense and create a climate for war to break out. And Tubman was an important part of that. She was someone who was not just a symbolic part of it, but an actual part of it. But I think it's important that we don't end her story or the Underground Railroad with the Civil War. Certainly a lot of new books coming out, Steve Hahn's Pulitzer Prize winning A Nation Under Our Feet and many other books have been looking at this question of the multiple meanings of the Civil War. Ed Ayers has a new uh, book of essays, a wonderful read called What Caused the Civil War? And we're looking at the complexity of African-American self-determination figuring into this larger question of the meaning and causes of the Civil War. Something, as you know, that causes a lot of um, a lot of uh, debate within Civil War scholarship, but I think a, a worthwhile debate. Well, absolutely on that. that I'm although, although I want to add, yes, as you ahead. know, we've talked about before, I'm all for sexuality being looked at in terms of the Civil War. As a matter of fact, I have a new book coming out called Battle Scars, Gender and Sexuality and the Civil War. It's a follow-up to the Divided Houses volume, and in it, several individuals introduce sexuality. But as you and I have talked about, I think it's really much more healthy to um, to not be speculative, but try and look at evidence when we're dealing with sexuality in Civil War history, and not just focus in on the sexual preferences of individuals, like our 16th president, which has been in the headlines quite a bit lately, but to try and really look seriously at questions of sexuality, gender, and how the war, which was the most amazing event in 19th century transformation, transformed sexuality as it did every aspect of everyday life. One of the challenges in writing about sexuality in Civil War history or any period of history uh, has to be uh, your sources. Certainly. Uh, People are uh, not going to talk as openly about uh, sexual issues as they will about the experience of battle, for example. Sure, and Bell Wiley, in his uh, look at soldiers' lives, talked about the actual censorship that went on not just in soldiers' letters, but in those who held on to soldiers' letters, because the Civil War was, of course, the greatest explosion of primary material. Everyone held on to those letters. When I was doing my first book, The Plantation Mistress, and I was touring around the South, I was looking at the role of women from 1780 to 1835, and all the families I visited had personal letters from the Civil War era that they wanted to share, that they had held on to. So we had all these wonderful sources, but there was censorship. Were people open? Were they were they talking about sexuality questions? Well, I think some of the new social history work has really pointed to that, and um, certainly there are other ways of getting at it. I'm really thrilled with a piece we have in our Battle Scars volume by Lisa Carden, where she looks at questions of sexual violence and looks at the Ku Klux Klan hearings where people are testifying to behavior. And reading about it is absolutely riveting and really, I think, important. And I found looking at the medical records of the Civil War that you could find out a lot of material through looking at venereal diseases, gonorrhea, the attitude towards it, and the way in which the military commanders felt they had to be fighting on the medical front 
as well as on the battlefield in order to keep their soldiers in training and in the field. So uh, where uh, I think it was Thomas Lowry calls his book uh, the stories the soldiers wouldn't tell. Right, and I uh, think um, putting all those stories together was a service, and now some of us can start analyzing and deconstructing right. and expanding on these stories. Um, but you're making the point they actually did often tell the stories, but then the families might take them out of the letter collections. Right, but some of it... You can't censor everything. You can't erase it. And also, I think it's interesting that we can look at both history and fiction. Uh, for example, in Battle Scars, both John Stauffer and Steve Kantrowitz are looking at masculinity and northern manhood and the way in which the fiction of New England writers can sometimes give us insight into attitudes towards sexuality. And, and there are, I think, other ways that getting at this. Anne Rubin looks at women's advice columns in, in the postbellum period. And, um, you know, Tom Brown has a wonderful piece on statues and what, what our images of masculinity and femininity were in the post-war period and how those had to be transformed and then actually sculpted into stone in order to try and recreate pre-war attitudes to try and have a status quo antebellum, which of course didn't work because African Americans entered into the formula as um, immigrants and others came into this country. I mean, America was a, was a country at war, and yet people were still flooding into this country, even during wartime. It's really an amazing demographic phenomenon that went on during that era. And the spread of diseases and how this was handled during this era is is really an important phenomenon that new work in, in medical history and the new social history. One of our pieces is by Jim Downs, who has a dissertation at Columbia called Diagnosing Reconstruction and looking at how in the post-war period one of the major, major challenges was actually to stop the spread of disease and try and control it. You had the Freedmen's Bureau hospitals. You had cholera epidemics, smallpox epidemics, and the way in which these were being handled was really an incredible challenge to the wartime generation. So uh, certainly there's a lot more to be to be written there. And Absolutely. And I look forward to people scouring their attics and going into records and more and more of this material, I think, is being discovered and, and is being turned over and is creating exciting new history. I'm thinking, uh, and I, I'm trying to recall the author's name, I want to say Francis Clark uh, wrote an essay not long ago on the uh, effect of the image of masculinity as it affected war amputees. Right. I remember that wonderful essay. I thought that was it was very eye-opening. Right. Whereas in the 20th century, uh, an amputated man was seen as less of a man, uh, uh, perhaps a feminized man, in the aftermath of war. Uh, it was a symbol of sacrifice. It was a red badge of courage. It right. Was, uh, uh, they, they wore their sleeves proudly pinned, empty sleeves, pinned openly, rather, to, to show that they had lost an arm. Right. And so we are, I think, you know, in an age where we're able to look at different questions, um, go back in time, and really find out that there's actually material there. I always encourage my students to keep rereading material. You find new things in the slave narratives. Um, certainly the WPA narratives are a wonderful resource for slavery, but they're also an amazing resource for Civil War history. They have lots of incredible material, wartime stories, 
the same I find with lots of oral history interviews at the um, wonderful oral history collection that Jackie Hall has done at uh, Chapel Hill. You can go in and read narratives, and people will tell stories about their grandparents and the Civil War. And in those stories, we get new insights into the meaning of the Civil War and its impact on families and towns and entire generations. Now, an immediate challenge to that would be well, these are these are just stories. These have been handed down. They've been modified over time. They're not truly what actually happened in the Civil War. Right, right. Well, I tell a wonderful story about the fact that in my book, Harriet Tubman, I very, very strongly um, endorse the use of oral history because I'm, as an African, a scholar of African-American history and working in African-American studies, you learn more and more the value of what is passed on as well as what is written down. And so in my introduction, I say that it's very important to look at questions of oral history and that I try in my work not to privilege the written record over oral history. And I said this in an interview to a reporter when I was on my book tour, and the reporter dutifully wrote down what I was saying. And the next day in the paper, the paper of record, I might add, it said that Professor Clinton does not privilege oral history over the written record, which was, of course, the opposite of what I said. And that's a written record. So I try and give that example to people of the way in which we must weigh things in the balance. You know, we're we're in the middle of a lot of things now that people look at evidence and they interpret it very differently. They interpret words differently or tone or intonation. And why shouldn't the same thing go on in terms of 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 the writing down of anecdotes and stories? You know, regimental histories are full of stories, and we take them as a part of the record. We weigh them. We weigh when they were written down whether memories were faulty, whether people had political agendas, but I think that's all a part of history, and that oral history can be weighed and judged just as valuable as the written record. So it, it not, not to suggest that oral history is infallible, but rather we already acknowledge the fallibility of written records. Right. And as long as we're using fallible written records, let's use fallible oral records with equal right. sensitivity. So when my colleague at a slavery conference is loudly decrying my use of oral history and telling me I shouldn't listen to oral history, I had to say to him, and his name was Jerry, but not to you, Jerry, Um, well, Jerry, then I shouldn't listen to what you're saying until it's written down. I mean, we all experience the fact that 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 we we hear things, and of course, there is a difference between what is spoken and what is written down and what is revised, and um, thank goodness for revisions. I know everyone has got their agendas and lots of times people will decry revisionist history but without a revision we wouldn't be in the business we're in would we that's right well all history is revisionist history. that's right it all changes what came before there would be no need to write it now you sort of made a point in our first segment i didn't want to leave it behind about writing for children and trying to awaken an interest in uh, children in in american history the civil war era particularly how did you become interested in history? Well, I became interested in history, I think, because I I actually have to say that I loved watching films and television programs that portrayed the past. I was one of those kids that was addicted to, I hate to confess it, but Disney on Sunday nights. That's oh, yeah. when I first came in contact with Swamp Fox and the great American Revolution. And 
I really do think that I noticed when I was coming of age and then when I had young children myself in the 80s that they were very forward-looking and Star Wars, and I wanted to see more backward-looking. So I became interested in trying to look at how could we keep our our next generation as engaged in history as I thought previous generations had been. And I'm very committed to working on documentaries and working in film projects that I think are really exciting. But also I found that my own children led me to an interest in the Civil War and history. And they would point out to me, for example, that Abraham Lincoln would pop up on The Simpsons, the most popular animated series on television, and <clears throat> they would show me that um, in Wayne's world, Garth and Wayne would be discussing Abraham Lincoln very seriously, and he would pop up in Ted and Bill's Excellent Adventure. So I think you know, the belovedness of historical characters was something that struck me, and actually that led me very much into biography, the way in which a magnetic individual can capture a child's imagination and allow them to go back in time and become very interested in that time period. I'm not saying biography is the only way. I'm just saying it's a way, I think, a way into the past that most children can identify with. Now, when you do, when you write for children, then, how do you, uh, do you consciously think about a different style or a different uh, tone? Well, there is, I, I think you, you must you must simplify it down to the bare bones, but you must not distort it. So it is really a question of keeping your language as simple as possible, as accessible. The most recent book I did was actually for five to eight-year-olds. And I can tell you trying to reduce racism, battle, death, heroism into a language accessible to five to eight-year-olds is indeed a challenge. But I think one that all of us should try and be engaged in, not each and every one of us perhaps writing children's books because I think it's a much too, too, um, it's it's a wonderful field, but it's also um, a great struggle. But I am pleased that I would say I think now is prime time in American history that children's book editors are trying to put out good history, nonfiction books, chapter books, as well as picture books. And I'm I'm really impressed with what I see going on. My book is being published by Amistad, which is a, an imprint at, uh, at HarperCollins. And I know that Hyperion has an imprint, and I publish books with Houghton Mifflin, and they're all very concerned about getting good history books out for children. So that I see as a, as a new trend, and I think it may have come out of, out of film and out of um, another, another field we haven't talked about is fiction. I think we're also having a great revival of Civil War fiction. Well, I think that, that's certainly true with the children's books. Uh, I, I've read many of the Magic Treehouse series uh, right. uh, to my younger daughter over the last couple of years, and they are often set in, in other times. Sure. And there, there is a sense that, uh, and children will be interested in this without the sense they're necessarily being taught history. They will simply uh, want to read it. But I, I would agree with you that if you go back to the, the 60s uh, and even earlier, there was a culture of history uh, of, as you said, the Disney uh, shows, the the movies, uh, the TV series that focused on things in the past. The, uh, the Western, which is the, the classic TV format, was takes place in the past. Sure. Uh, there are no Westerns on TV anymore. Right. Uh, 
but we grew up in a time when when play often was set in the past. Uh, we True. Had cowboys and Indians or uh, play. Well, now there are westerns on cable. Let's say That's HBO true. is putting on Deadwood and other things. And I, I really do have to say also, I think, um, for example, even even the films or attempts. I mean, a film like Cold Mountain, which is trying to film a classic book. Um, Many think may have failed, but I think it still showed a side of the Civil War, the home front, in a way that I found very compelling. It did, of course, have its failings. Um, many people were quite rightly concerned about its soft focus analysis of race. But nevertheless, I was really moved to see a Civil War image that I thought hadn't been on the screen before. Yeah, and it did reach a wide audience. And, and a very wide audience. As, as Glory did uh, earlier in, in the same way, bring a new story to the screen. And Absolutely. Tell people about it. But we'll talk more about this when we return in a moment. Yeah.